first time I heard jazz was on a radio station, WBT, from Charlotte, North Carolina, which was a country and western station. That's all they played. But this, they had one disc jockey there, a guy named Grady Cole, never will forget him, and he had one record, Louis Armstrong, was St. James Infirmary. And he played that every day because he loved that. And that's my first, first time listening to hearing jazz music. And I liked it. In fact, I waited for that one record. Whenever I play a ballad, I always try to get a tone like Johnny Hodges. Like he used to slur notes and sustain certain notes on his saxophone. And uh, when I tried to move, through the chords, I would try to move through them like Charlie Parker. So that's that's about the style I play. That was saxophonist and 2013 NEA jazz master Lou Donaldson. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. While most of you are preparing for the holidays and the new year, here at the NEA, we're getting ready for the new class of jazz masters. And they are Mose Allison, Lorraine Gordon, Eddie Palmieri, and Lou Donaldson. Lou Donaldson's alto sax has been a force in jazz for more than six decades. He spent his early years in the bebop era, influenced heavily by Charlie Parker. But Donaldson combined bop with a more soulful sound that was absolutely his own. It was a style of playing that earned him the nickname Sweet Papa Lou. Donaldson made a series of classic records for Blue Note in the 1950s and he takes great pride in having showcased many musicians who made their first records with him, including pianist Horace Silver and trumpeters Donald Byrd and Clifford Brown. But impossible to characterize, Donaldson's recordings with organist Jimmy Smith led to the groove-filled jazz of the 1960s and 70s. At the age of 86, Lou continues to perform his swinging bebop with tunes that are always soulful and steeped in the blues. Donaldson has received many awards and honors throughout his career, including being inducted into the International Jazz Hall of Fame in 1996. And now he's been named a 2013 NEA Jazz Master. I spoke with Lou at Jazz at Lincoln Center soon after he found out he was named an NEA Jazz Master. I knew Lou Donaldson came from a musical family, and I wanted to know more about those musical roots. My father was minister, A.M. Zion preacher, and my mother was music director and classical pianist. Your brother and sisters, they all play the piano. All of them play the piano, right. But you don't? Nope. How come? Because uh, my mother was a music teacher, and she used to give lessons, and when the kids would miss a note, she had a switch. Boop! Right across that hand. <laughs> and I never took it up. How did you begin to play music? Well, what happened? I'm asthmatic, you know, and uh, I never thought about playing an instrument anyway. And one day my mother told me, said, you know, Lewis, you know, call me Lewis, said, uh, you've got more music talent than anybody in this family. Because, like, when the kids would play these little etudes, I used to go around humming them, and I knew all, you know, all of the things. And when they'd miss a note, I said, oh, that's not the right note, you know. 
And she said, well, you got musical ability. She said, we'll have to get you to play some kind of instrument. And they had a band in my hometown because nothing was there actually but alcohol aluminum. It was a factory. And everybody in the town, except the teachers and doctors and things, they worked in the factory. And uh, they had a band. And she went over to the bandmaster and got a clarinet and uh, brought it back. And we, you know, learned how to play the clarinet. That's how I got started. You went to college. Yeah. And ended up joining the Navy in 1940. I didn't join. I was drafted, forcibly drafted. <laughs> in 44? Maybe 44, 45, yeah. And that was the time you switched from the clarinet to the saxophone. Actually, what happened to me is was I was, uh, I was going to college at the time I was drafted. And when they give you the intelligence test, they put everybody you know, in a bracket. And they had me in a bracket where I was going to go to be a radar specialist. First time that black people had ever done anything except uh, be a, a cook, something like that. I came by the band room one day and I heard this clarinet squeaking. And I just stuck my head in the door. You know like people do it in the Navy. And I said, who, who the hell is that making all that noise in there with that clarinet? And the band instructor was giving a guy a lesson. And so he said, what, what are you talking about? I said, give me the clarinet. Let me show you how to play it. So I played it. So he put up a little music and I played it. And he put up some harder stuff and I played it. He said, man, you, you one of the best clarinet players. And I said, what are you? What band are you? And I said, I'm not in no band. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to radar school. He said, well, you just got demoted. We're putting you in the band. Well, that day he asked me, he said, you play clarinet? I said, you play saxophone too? No, I had never touched a saxophone. I said, oh, yeah, I play saxophone. <laughs> and he never knew that I didn't play saxophone. Because when I got in the band, they issued me a clarinet and a saxophone, and I took both of them back to the barracks and practiced them. And by the time they called me back, I, w I was able to play it. <laughs> Did you take to the saxophone right away? I mean, the oh, sound yeah. of oh, it? Oh, yeah, I loved, I loved the alto. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the first saxophonist you ever saw play? I don't know who it was, but I know that I used to like Johnny Hodges. I used to see Duke Ellington in the band. And uh, I used to like Johnny Hodges. And bands would come through my hometown, and I'd see the saxophone players, and I, you know, I used to try to like them, you know, all of them. Louis Jordan, people like that, you know. They didn't really play that much jazz, but uh, I liked them anyway. What did you do when you got out of the Navy? I went back to school. Went back and uh, finally got a degree, 47, Bachelor of Science. And then I was a baseball player. I played a little semi-professional baseball. Played. Uh, that's all I wanted to do. I didn't really want to play music. But bands kept coming through, like Dizzy and Lionel Hampton, and, and I sit in with the bands. You know, I'm a college kid, so they give you a shot. And they kept telling me to come to New York. So eventually, I said, "Well, maybe." So I came to New York. What was New York City like then, in terms of music? Oh, it was great. It was great. It was great. We had about 10 clubs right in Harlem where you could go and play you know, music. You wouldn't make much, $10, $15 a night, but, you know, it was, it was good. When was the first time you heard Charlie Parker? Oh, I heard Charlie Parker when I was in the Navy. That's what made me really stick with the alto. Once I heard Charlie Parker, I just about forgot about the clarinet because I, I like Charlie Parker's sound.
and it was great. I've never heard anything like that before. Can you talk about what it is that you heard that was so different? Well, it was him. He played different style. The way he moved through all the songs and stuff like that, the way he, his variations on the songs, so different from everybody else. And all the musicians, of course, were talking about it too. Uh, I just liked it. I liked it. And you, you've said that hearing Charlie Parker had you change your approach to the saxophone. Yeah, it did. It did. It changed my approach completely because I wanted to play like that. Then I'd buy the records and wear them down to the aluminum. You know, they had a, <laughs> they had aluminum a bass then, and I'd play them so much I'd run, I'd wear out the record. But I finally picked up a few things, and it was good. Can we just take a moment, because I know you've done a lot of thinking and writing about this, the transition from swing to bop. You write right. a thesis about it. Right. For people who might not know, can, can we just begin with the basics, and can you just tell us a little bit, what, what is swing? You mean jazz? Yeah. Swing? Yeah. That's what it is, swing. Jazz is swing. Yeah. Don't mean a thing if you ain't got that swing. But what I was talking about, see, most of the jazz before bebop was uh, dance music. It was, was, wasn't only jazz, it was dance music. All the bands played for dancing. Every band played for dancing. Very few bands ever played like concerts. Maybe Duke Ellington or somebody like that once in a while. But everybody has count basic, Jimmy Lunchford, Earl Hines, Erskine Hawkins, you know, all the bands. Tiny Bradshaw, all of them played, they played for dancing. That's, that's what they were, dance bands. And then what happened with Bebop? What was the transition? The transition was that uh, Dizzy and Charlie Parker had a new way of playing music, and it was a small, smaller group. Small group, wasn't big band when it first came out. Actually, what happened, Dizzy talked Coleman Hawkins into making a record. Uh, called Woody and You. It's it written for Woody Herman. And uh, that set everybody on that trend and started them playing that way. And it, it was a smaller group, and they played a lot of solos. See, in the dance bands, you didn't have many solos. Maybe you had one or two, and that was it. And you never had a drum solo but once a night. They usually feature a drummer one time a night, and that was it. No more. And it was, it was great. But bebop, you could play, everybody could play on every song, and it's a different, different kind of setup. Can we talk about Minton's? Yeah. What was Minton's like? You were the house saxophonist there. Yeah, for a while, yeah. Minton's was a, like a joint. It wasn't really a club. It had a, had a bar that faced the door. Before you got to the bar, it was a floor there, like a, like a dance floor. But the people didn't dance, but it was there. And it was, the band was right on the side of the bar on a stage. And it was what we call a walk-in place. You know, you didn't have to pay anything. And uh, everybody came there. It was like a celebrity hangout. Because you had people, say, like Roy Eldridge, Billy Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughn. They worked downtown. But their jobs ended at 12 o'clock or 1 o'clock. Men stayed open till 4 o'clock. So about 2 o'clock, all of them were there. You know, they'd come up to get a drink, and everybody would be there. So the people knew they would be there, so the people would flock in to see them. Joe Lewis came in there, the famous fighter. 
Malcolm X used to come in there, you know. All those kind of people came in. Adam Clayton Powell, the big shots, used to come in to hear the music. So it was great, great. Four sets. Four sets a night. We start at 10 and we end up at 4, unless at the end of the night, see, in that place a lot of hustlers came. And if the ladies had made a lot of money, <laughs> they'd come in about 3.30 or 4 o'clock and say, give everybody a drink. And then the manager said, well, you got to play a couple more tunes because he, he wants to hear, you know. <laughs> so sometimes we play till 5 o'clock. And you used to do breakfast sessions. Yeah, right. Describe a breakfast session. Well, actually, it wasn't a breakfast section. We had a place up in Harlem we called Wales, where after, after 4 o'clock, everybody would go up and eat chicken and waffles and chicken livers and grits. And right up the street, a half a block, was a place called Connie's. And everybody would, after they'd eat, they'd go right up there and play till 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning, you know, jam session. It was great. Can't beat it. You never see any days like that anymore. Now, you sat in with Charlie Parker, didn't you? Yeah, a couple of times. How'd that happen? Well, actually, he came down to Paradise Club, 110th Street and 8th Avenue, and uh, the manager wanted him to play. He said, okay. So he came up to play. So everybody left the stand. In fact, I was leaving, too. And he said, no, you, you stay and play with me. And I said, oh, no, <laughs> not going to be nothing like that. He said, yeah, I said, then he told the manager, say, if Lou doesn't play, I'm not going to play. <laughs> so the manager made me play with him. That's the only reason you see me standing up there. <laughs> Your very long association with Alfred Lyon and Blue Note oh, began yeah. mm -hmm. in 52. Right. right. How did that happen? Well, what happened is I used to uh, train with a guy. I used to be, you know, fighter. You know, I, I wasn't a fighter, but I used to train. For, boxing? Yeah, boxing, you know, for protection, you know. And uh, his, dad, his name was Art Woods, and uh, he was a friend of Milt Jackson's. And he told Milt about me, so Milt heard me play. And he said, okay, you need to make a date with me. So we made a date with Milt Jackson. Actually, it was 1950, and that's how I first met Alfred Lyon. And he liked me, so naturally the rest is history. He started recording me, and a few of the records started selling, so he kept recording me, you know, for many years. You are one of the people with Art Blakey you know, performing on one of the great live jazz albums, A Night in Birdland. Yeah, it's, it's the best, best recorded uh, session ever done live. Yeah. One, two, three. <laughs>
How did it happen? How did it come to be? Well, actually, it was a company day. It was Blue Note day. Blue Note, the Alfred Lyon got everybody together and uh, wanted us to make this date. What happened is that he put art on the drums, Horace and, and, and myself, and, and I had made this record with Clifford Brown a year before then. And they liked Clifford Brown so well, they brought Clifford Brown in on trumpet and, and Curly Russell on bass, and that's, that's the way it developed. But once we got to playing and it got to be so successful, between Art and P.B. Marquette, they forgot it was a company date, and he thought Art Blakey and his jazz messengers. <laughs> and it wasn't really the jazz messengers. That, that wasn't the jazz messengers group. People don't know the difference, and the record sold, so nobody said anything about it. What made it so great, Lou? It was live. It was a live session. The people were into the music. And Clifford Brown was so dynamic, you, you, you wouldn't believe. I would have played the job for no money. This cat was great. He to be so young and to have so much stuff together at that age, it, it was amazing. It was amazing. And I actually played well on that itself. So it's, it, it was amazing. Amazing. You got the energy, the projection from the music to the people. And you can hear it on the record. And it, it was great. It was great. It's a different kind of music, as anybody knows that play music. Sometimes you just into it better. You play better. Same songs every night, but it's a different thing. Some nights, a different thing. Blues Walk in 1958 became your signature song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's my theme song. How did it come, come about? Talk about that. Well, you won't believe it. Uh, I hate to le leak out this information because <laughs> I'm going to put it in my book. But anyway, I had a meeting with Al Lyon and Frank Wolf, and I told them, I said, look, I'm not recording any more music with, no, with any junkies. Junkies got to go. I'm going to pick the musicians, I'm going to pick the band, and we're going to make this record. So I picked this guy, Herman Foster, who played piano. He was blind. He was singing in the church, but I had been playing jam sessions with him up at Connie's, and I liked him. And I picked Dave Bailey, drummer. Dave was a liquor salesman, but I had played some stuff with him, and I liked him. And I got Ray Barretto on the conga. And the bass player I had was Peck Morrison, who lived with me. I was living in a housing project at that time, up in Throg's Neck in the Bronx. And he got in, he was my neighbor, so he played the bass. And we made this record, and it was a hit. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Frank Wolf told me, it's the first record that Blue Note got on the jukebox from New York to California. That's a good tune. Got a good groove. 
that sort of leads to my next question because you all you talk about musicians, saxophonists, having a musical ID. Right. How did you develop yours? Oh, I don't know how I did. It's just a cross between blues and bebop. It's in between there somewhere because uh, naturally most of my stuff is like on what we call the soul side because of all the experience I had with my father and church music, spiritual music, which I heard, you know, all my life. And uh, I just interject some of that into my playing, and that's, that's what it is. How'd you get the name Sweet Papa Lou? Bob Porter. Bob Porter got me. I was making a date for him one, one time, and uh, he just started to call me Sweet Papa Lou because I played this ballad, If I Should Lose You or something. He liked it. And he said, oh, Sweet Papa Lou. And then he, that's what he called me. He named the album Sweet Papa Lou. Did you play with Thelonious Monk? Yeah. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like for you? Well, it was all right. All right, except he would never write anything out. You had to learn it, you know. <laughs> and he, was, he never said anything much, unless you made a mistake or something, you'd say something. But he wouldn't say much. Monk was one of the funniest guys I ever saw in my life. Because Monk never talked to anybody. I talked to him all the time, but he wouldn't talk to anybody. And when he did, he talked out the corner of his mouth. He comes to me and goes, oh, you know that? I said, what the hell are you saying, Monk? <laughs> but he was an amazing guy. I used to see him when I first came. He'd be down to Blue Note all the time, Monk and Nelly, his wife. Any time I went down there, they'd be down there. First, I thought he worked for the company. <laughs> the guy said, oh, that's the Lodi's Monk. He's a piano player. I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> I really would love to talk about the circuit. Can you describe the circuit that you developed? The circuit was the most amazing thing that I think has ever happened since I've been in the jazz business. Now, you had the big band circuit, which was big bands would go from New York to Florida playing in these dance halls, you know. But this was across the country. We started in... Rochester, we hit Buffalo. Then we go to Columbus, Ohio, Cincinnati, Louisville, Kentucky, St. Louis, Kansas City. And every one of these clubs had a personality that ran the club. And it was amazing because uh, we could do this two or three times a year. It wasn't a whole lot of money, but it was a job. And you got to know the people in the town. And you know, a lot of things you could do free, like go to a restaurant, they give you food for nothing. People today, they don't even know about that kind of stuff. What happened to me, it was the most amazing experience in the world because back then, everything was segregated. And when you got in these towns, there wasn't but one hotel you could go to, the black hotel. And I got to meet everybody, all the football players, Jimmy Brown, all the guys, knew all of them. I used to meet them and talk to them, and we'd have fun, and they, a lot of them liked jazz. So they'd come around to the clubs. That time was amazing. You know, you're known for being able to read an audience. Right. Yeah, well, we had what we call a feel them out set. The first set. Feel them out? Feel them out. When we went to a new place that we'd never played, we played a cross section of music. We played fast, we played slow, we played blues, we played balance. Whatever the people responded to, that's where we laid. We sneak in a couple of bebop tunes and anything that we wanted to play. But once we got them in our pocket, it's just very simple, and it worked. 
it's still working now. Your other great jazz innovation, the series of recordings with Jimmy Smith that popularized the organ sax trio sound. That's it. That was it. Jimmy was a genius. Jimmy was a good piano player, too. But Jimmy was a guy that found that organ and found a new way of playing the organ, like, like you could play a piano. Up until then, organ players, they didn't really play like piano players. You listen to Milt Buckner, Wild Bill Davis, and all those kind of people. They played organ a different way. But Jimmy played it like a piano. It looked like he was Art Tatum playing an organ. And he was great. And uh, my sound, we, we, we were very compatible. Yeah, we worked together without a doubt. We had two or three straight hit records, you know, just like that. Great. Did he travel the circuit with you? No, no, no. No, he didn't travel the circuit, no. I had other organ players. All of them got to be famous. John Patton, Charles Erlin, Dr. Lonnie Smith, all those people, they, they got to be famous from traveling that circus. And you traveled with an organ. You had an organ in a U-Haul? Had an organ, and I used to put it in the U-Haul and pull it wherever I went. And I did that for about 30 years, never had an accident, never got late, nothing. Sometimes I sit back and think about it, and I'd say, well, God must have been on my side. And I'm not a religious man. My wife was. <laughs> she was religious. And she used to tell me, well, I'm praying for you. That's why you're all right, because it's never up to you. You'd be gone. <laughs> Another big hit you had was Alligator Boogaloo. Oh, yeah, now that's, that was the best selling record I ever made. And what happened, see, actually, it's a funny story, a lot of people don't believe it. I'm a golfer, and uh, I happened to be in Florida on vacation, and I went to the golf course, and I hit a ball in a ditch, and I had a caddy, so I'm going to get the ball. He said, no, no, don't, don't, don't go in there. I said, I said, man, I got to get this ball. That's a title. It cost me $1.25. I'm getting my ball. So I stick my club in there, and I hear this rattling down there. I said, uh-oh. And then he went back and opened up the weeds, and there's an alligator down there. <laughs> so when I was in the studio, we couldn't find a name for the song. So I said, oh, well, let's call it Alligator Boogaloo. <laughs> you also played with singers, and I'm thinking of a stint you did with Betty Carter yeah. at the Audubon. Yeah, How right. did that happen? And this is a story I'm telling you. Now, this is a story that you, you won't believe. I was working in Washington, D.C., and I went down there to play something. It wasn't a jazz mobile, but it was like something like the city parks had some things. And, uh, and I played from 5 to 8. And we had to come back to New York. We got to come through Baltimore, which is about 30 miles away. And I knew that Miles was working in Baltimore. So I said, let's go by and catch Miles' last set, Saturday night. So I get there about 9 or 10 o'clock. No Miles. I see his band. Paul Chambers, Philly Joe, Red Garland sitting out on the, on the stoop with their instruments. And I said, what's, what's happening? Where are you sitting out here? They said, we're not praying and the guy won't give us any money. And I said, what happened? Miles drew all the money up on Friday night and they haven't seen Miles since. <laughs> <laughs>
standing. And I said, what? And naturally, they didn't have any way to get to New York. So I didn't have anything in my station wagon. So I said, all right, put the bass and drums and things in there, and I'll take you to Philadelphia, which I did. And when I got to New York, Red Garland called me and said, man, we couldn't, Mom. Said, we see you working up at the Audubon. Said, can we make a couple of weeks up there? I said, yeah, of course. You know, you can make it. You know, but I didn't have nothing but local musicians. So I put out this big sign, Lou Downs with the Red Garland Trio. So many people came, they didn't have the space. And so what had happened, I booked the place myself. I rented the place. I, re I had rented it for the summer. And we played from 5 to 9 every Sunday evening. And the business got so good, I said, we better bring in a singer. So I brought in Betty Carter. That's how she got there. In fact, she wasn't even famous then because she sang straight ahead music then. And a big number was Perdido. And she was young, good looking, you know. And she'd get to shaking when she sang. <laughs> and it was a great, it was a great, great group. Great time. And what happened? Everybody made a lot of money and got famous. What makes a good jazz group a good jazz group? I don't know, it's hard for me to say. You got to be compatible with whoever you play with. Do you mean compatible in terms of personality or compatible in personality terms of... Personality and music. Now I've seen groups that played so well that there's no way that all those guys didn't love each other. I've seen groups like that. They just played good together. I was in one group like that with Don Byrd, myself, Art Taylor, Doug Watkins, and Red Garland, when he showed up. He was so bad about showing up, we had people like Wynton Kelly, they'd hang around every night about 9 o'clock to see was he going to show. If not, they had a job for that night. But when he showed it, it was great. It was a great band. And I had my band with Herman Foster and Peck Morrison and people like that. We didn't even rehearse sometime unless we had a record date. We'd play months and months, never even have a rehearsal, because everybody was so compatible. It's just things that just happen that way. And I've been told now by people that I know that, uh, like, say, when Duke used to play, he used to have a drummer named Sam Woodyard. And he said Sam would play so good, said some nights after the job, Duke would go over there and kiss him, because <laughs> he was so happy. <laughs> Another big song you had, you actually sang on it. Uh oh. Whiskey Drinking Woman. Oh, yeah, I do that now. People love that. <laughs> and that's another interesting story about that song. I was in London at Ronnie Scott's Club, and I'm singing my regular blues, you know, that I sing. This guy comes up with this tuxedo and everything, and this gold, all these watches, there's so much gold, he put his hand up, he, he blind you in the eye, there's so much gold. He said, Lou, use these words. And I said, uh, what do you mean, use these words? He said, these are some good words for your blues. So I, I started, I started singing it, Whiskey Drinking Woman. She's a whiskey drinking woman. She drinks whiskey all the time. Nothing but four roses without a chase of Yeah, she's a whiskey drinking woman. 
She drinks whiskey all the time. Yes, but I love that woman because she's mine, oh mine, oh mine. And then when I asked, I said, "Who are you?" He says, "My name. His name is John Turner. He's one of the prime baritone singers at the London Opera at that time. He wrote those words." They're not mine, they're his. <laughs> and he said, don't put my name on it because I don't want to lose my job with the opera. <laughs> when did you start touring in Europe? I started touring in Europe when? I don't know, it was late for me because I didn't have any reason to go over there because I, I had my own tour. I think it was in the mid-70s when I started touring in Europe. And it was so amazing until I did it long term. In fact, I was just over there in May. It's almost astounding. People come up to me with tears in their eyes, you know, remembering the stuff we used to play back in the 50s and 60s, way back. And I didn't know those records were selling that well until I went over there. Audiences, are they different in Europe? Oh, yeah. Well, in the first place, they know what you're playing. And they research every personality. They can tell me my mother, my father, you know, my hometown, Baden, North Carolina. Well, I went to school, I was in the Navy, I, you know, they know everything. They love the music. And you can't even go to eat like, like me. When I'm in a foreign country, naturally I don't, I don't like the food in a lot of countries, so I go to the Burger King and Kentucky Fried. And when you come out, there's a line of people out there with albums for you to sell. You don't even know they know you. If you could go back at that time and play at one club, what club would it be? Probably Memphis, Memphis Playhouse. Best club to play in, best club. I knew everybody, knew everybody. It was, it was an amazing club. And Teddy Hill, who ran it, he was, he was an old bandmaster himself. He had a band himself. He was, he was a nice guy, but he, it was a great place. Never be another place like that. Not for jazz music. At my age, I'm not, nothing really excites me that much. Because I've been, I've done everything that I wanted to do in music. And I'm one of the lucky ones because I, you know, I made, made a profit on it, you know. Not rich, but I'm comfortable. And uh, I know like millions of people, which is amazing anyway to anybody. Because I can go anywhere, any country. It's just a rewarding profession. I don't know anything else more rewarding than being an artist. It's, uh, it's amazing amazing thing to even think about and uh, I'm still able to play just about as well as I always did. Not as long, but and uh, I play golf. I can hit balls just as far as I always did. <laughs> Can't putt, but I'm all right. What more can you ask for, Lou? Thank you so much. All right, thank you very much and thank the NEA uh, Jazz Masters program and everything. Thank you. It's a wonderful program and thank you. That was alto saxophonist and 2013 NEA Jazzmaster, Lou Donaldson. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from Bye Bye Blackbird, composed by Mort Dixon, performed by the Lou Donaldson Quartet, at Dizzy's Club Coca-Cola, used courtesy of Jazz at Lincoln Center. Excerpt from Whiskey Drinking Woman, performed by the Lou Donaldson Quartet, composed by Lou Donaldson from his album, Relaxing at Sea, 
live on the QE2, used courtesy of Chiaroscuro Records. Excerpt from Blues Walk, performed and composed by Lou Donaldson from the album Blues Walk, used courtesy of Blue Note Records, a division of EMI Capital. Excerpt from Alligator Boogaloo, performed and composed by Lou Donaldson from his album Alligator Boogaloo, used courtesy of Blue Note Records, a division of EMI Capital. Excerpt from Quicksilver, composed by Horace Silver, and performed by the Art Blakey Quintet, from the album A Night at Birdland, used courtesy of Blue Note Records, a division of EMI Capital. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at arts.gov. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, we're taking a break, but we're back on January 3rd with 2013 NEA Jazz Master Lorraine Gordon. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.